It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. You know, I am amped up to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Richard Ruff a top sales trainer and leading expert on major account selling. He's the author of the book, Mastering Major Account Selling, and co-author with Neil Rackham of one of the seminal books on the subject titled Managing Major Sales. We're going to talk about a couple topics today. One is account-based selling. There's a lot of buzz around that today. And then we're also going to talk about how smaller enterprises, smaller companies can get in and really compete and really grow their business through selling to major accounts. And Dick's going to help us sort all this out. Dick, welcome to the show. Well, it's, it's uh, great to be here, Andy. It's uh, nice to have an opportunity to uh, talk with you and your audience. Well, great. Thank you. So take a minute. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in sales and sales training and so on. Well, right. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I originally started with uh, Neil Rackham at Huthway and spent uh, you know, a number of years there when uh, Huthway was in a startup mode here in the United States. And then in the year uh, 2000... When I was, I was going to say, I think we take a second and pause. You know, Neil Rackham wrote Spin Selling, uh, which is yeah, sort of a real important book in terms of modern sales training and sales methodology and sales process and so on. Is, you know, how, did you, how did you get involved with Neil? Well, it was kind of a, kind of a funny thing. I moved back to, uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., and a friend of mine uh, was actually working with his girlfriend at the time <laughs> and uh, and she noted to my friend that uh, Neil was looking for another PhD psychologist type to work with him because he had just moved here from England. Originally uh, Neil did a lot of uh, substantive work with a uh, Huthwaite Research Group which was in, in England mm. and he had moved here uh, to uh, expand the business so it was really just you know him and the dog at that point. Uh, so that was the introduction. I met Neil uh, literally one afternoon, and he uh, we talked. And that day, I decided to go work for him. He's a very bright guy, a true innovator in the field. You know, I think his work really was foundational in in many regards. So it was a great learning opportunity. Well, but you're basically you're a PhD psychologist. Yes. <laughs> okay, I never knew that about you. Um, so that's interesting. So you didn't really come from a sales background then? No, no, no. Of all strange things, uh, psychology, which and psychologists aren't particularly noted for their interest in sales. Exactly. But uh, that's what intrigued me about, about Neil. I, I think that the, the real tipping point for me with Neil was that uh, he really took a research perspective to the field of sales versus the sort of tips and tricks stuff that at that time sort of characterized the industry. And, and, and the still thing, does to a large extent. Yeah. And, and the one thing psychologists are sort of into is, is the whole research thing. So there was an immediate sort of uh, compatibility there. So uh, it, it turned out to be a, a great thing. We you know, wrote two or three books together. And it was an opportunity uh, because Neil did the spin thing was, you know, pretty foundational. So we had sure. an opportunity to, you know, work 
absolutely world-class clients, you know, all the way from people like uh, Apple and Microsoft to consulting firms like McKinsey. So it was an opportunity to, to really work in market-leading companies doing innovative things when it came to sales. Well, I guess the so, question I'd have just is, and the, I mean, I've always sort of wanted to ask this question is, is so is spin selling, is there a reason to think spin selling is dated or is it still as relevant today as it was when it was first published? Yeah, that, that's one of the things people kick around a lot. And, you know, like, uh, you know, Neil did that work a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, uh, so people say, well, you know, that's, that's yesterday's news. Well, uh, actually, that's not true. It's not yesterday's news. And the reason it's not yesterday's news is because it's so fundamental. At the heart of it all, you know, spin selling is, is simply says you have to have the skills to get on the other side of the table. You have to genuinely understand the scale and scope of the needs of your client. And if you don't have that, then you can't possibly propose a compelling solution. So the quick question is, what are the skills you needed to do that? And clearly, one of the core skills is the ability to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I mean, in, in, uh, in the studies that we did with Neil, I mean, in, in study after study, uh, most sales reps uh, jump in too soon and talk too much about the product. And I see that happen today as well with my clients as it did 20 years ago. Absolutely. And so the, the question is, if you're going to ask questions, you know, what's a, a model for asking questions? And spin, that's all spin is. Spin, you know, is not a sales process. You know, it's not a sales strategy. It's a questioning model. But it's a good one. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and so it says fundamental things don't change. Lots of things in sales have changed, no question. But the ability to get on the other side of the table and genuinely understand the needs of the client hasn't changed, and I would suggest it probably won't. So I guess the question, a follow-on question, and I know we're veering off track a little bit here from what we originally started, but it was a fascinating topic, is, is how, how do we get this knowledge? You know, let's take spin as an example, because yeah, sure. yeah, one of the great weaknesses among sellers in general today is this question, you know, inability to ask the right type of questions. Yes. And so we've always fallen defaulted defaulted to actually in many cases is that you know there's overly scripted reps that have one or two questions in front of them and right. but they get past that first question and then they're lost right because what's the next question i should be asking based on what the customer said and what's the next question after that you know how do we make this knowledge stick right and we train somebody in spin or any other sort of the questioning question-based methodologies how do we get that knowledge to stick uh, right uh, yeah it's, re it's really tough andy i mean we, we obviously worked with with uh, a substantial number of clients, you know, wrestling with that problem. And, and that one of the mistakes, I think, is that people assume because something is fundamental that it's simple. Uh, that's not true either. Lots of things that are fundamental are not simple to acquire at all. So the, the first step in getting that to stick is to recognize that it's really, really hard to learn how to do. <laughs> And so if you think you can just, you know, parachute in and give somebody a program in any kind of questioning methodology, even a good one like SPIN, and that all of a sudden those reps are going to walk out after two days being highly skilled, 
That is not going to happen. So I think the fundamental answer to your question is you have to recognize that learning that skill is really hard. If you're going to do a program, you have to have substantial reinforcement on an ongoing basis. So it's never over. Right. So if, if right. So if you're a in the you know one of the listeners here, you're in the audience, and you're hearing this, you're a CEO, you're a sales leader. You know that reinforcement is so key. Is you know how do you from a training perspective? How do you how do you do that? You know, if you're a company, what do you, what's the investment you're going to make? Yeah, you're going to have somebody come in and just parachute in for a day, or they're going to do a program. But we all know the research shows that ninety percent of that knowledge is lost within thirty days. So how do you reinforce that? What's the level of investment well, you should be looking yeah. at? I think some overarching strategies are things like, first of all, you have to do a solid program to begin with. So it has to be highly customized to that particular client at that particular time. And it has to be probably at least a two-day program. So you have to have a good kickstart. Mm -hmm. After that, the, the fundamental key is, is really there's two. One is you have to have managers who are skilled in reinforcing. A lot of the reinforcement techniques are just tricks. You know, things like, you know, buy this book and it'll reinforce the stuff. Well, that's okay thing to do. Mm -hmm. but, but if your managers aren't coaching that skill on an ongoing basis, it will decay. So lesson number one, if you want to get serious about it, then you have to have a set of managers that are very good at that skill. If not, then you need to go train them in the skill so that they can coach it on an ongoing basis. Second thing you probably need to do is to recognize, for example, for additional training opportunities that will have a high, high impact. Mm -hmm. Every time I would suggest to, to, to my clients that every time they launch a, a new substantive product, that they take that product and do a training customized specifically to that on how do you go out and uncover the needs for this particular product and what questions do you ask to get at those needs? Because they could very well be different than the questions that you ask ar around your existing portfolio. Right. So I think you need to get serious about coaching and you need to look for high impact training opportunities to reinforce the skills. And the thing is, the job is never done. Well, and you also talk about the key point, uh, just to interject that, is, is reinforce them in context. Yes. Which is really important. So you're not doing it in isolation. Hey, here's the skill, questioning-based skill that's really great to have. No, here are the questions. We're going to retrain you or reinforce this based on this new product we've introduced. Yeah, and, and I'm just sorry to say, I mean, we get asked all the time, you know, well, yeah, 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 that sounds good. But, well, we don't spend all that time. Well, I'm sorry. I am not aware, after all these years, of any shortcuts. There's no tricks. Yeah. Exactly. There's, there's, there's no trick to, to developing a highly skilled sales force like there's no trick to developing a high skilled plumber. <laughs> I mean, it's a skill. And it's and repetition it's, and practice. Yeah. And, and it's really important. Yeah, yeah. Now, so here's another question, just sort of along the same lines, as long as we're on this topic, is it seems like so much of the onus these days for professional development of salespeople it's sort of falling on the sales reps themselves rather than the companies. You know, companies will do the training, but, you know, it seems like this reinforcement seems to be missing in most, most companies. And they sort of say, well, yeah, you, Mr. Sales Rep, go, or Miss Sales Rep, go read a book. 
So what? What's what's yeah. what's the answer to that? I mean, what what yeah. more should companies be doing beyond just as you said, sort of the point training? What should they be doing? Well, well, first of all, to the core point, I, I think uh, that is true that a lot of folks are saying, no, you know, that's you know, that's your job. You know, go get smarter. You know, kind of thing. We'll do some basic stuff, but in the end, you're accountable. Mm-hmm. You personally. But, yeah, yeah, right. You personally. Well, I, I think that's. I think there's some truth in that message, but I don't think it's an either or. I think companies still have to provide ongoing skill development if you want to have a superior sales force. And there's there's, you know, there's two components to that. There's training of various types, and there's coaching, and you have to do that on an ongoing basis. And, but it's okay to say to the rep, a piece of this action is your accountability, but let me supply you with things that you can do to help do that. You can't just say, go get smarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The company has to formulate some things that are follow-on and reinforcement activities that the reps step up and take responsibility for. Fair enough. And I think in the past, uh, a lot of companies really haven't, haven't done that. And, that, and that's okay, but the company who says do that and it's totally your responsibility is just naive. You'll never get to a superior sales force if you simply turn it all over to the rep. So, and the two answers for the company are the same two answers. You have to do training. You have to do coaching. And, and Andy, you need to get away from this idea that, that you can do substantive training Friday afternoon at the national sales meeting. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We brought we brought Dick in for thirty minutes here at the end of the day. Yeah, and 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 you know that that's that's just not going to happen. You know, it, it's it's hard work. But I, I, you know, I think that the really important notion is is this idea of really spending time and effort and money on training is not just a moral obligation. Today, in in most markets. It's extremely difficult to win by product alone. I don't care who you are with the global competition and, right. and, yeah, and the advanced manufacturing technologies, even if you have a superior product, you know. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. Right. I mean, we've done studies on that. And I mean, maybe 20 years ago, you, you could dominate a market for years and years and years if you had a great toy. Today, with, with with the manufacturing technology and the global competition, somebody's going to come on the street with something that's just as good as yours in half the time of yesteryear, and it's probably going to be at half the price. So don't be thinking that this idea of developing a sales force is just something that's a humane thing to do. It makes business sense. It's an investment like any other investment, and, and it has a huge payoff if you make the investment. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, laughing at your, your choice of the word humane, but I think I think it's appropriate to say that because, yeah, in, in many cases, reps are sent out completely unprepared for what they're going to encounter. And uh, it is, I, I haven't used that word humane before, but I think it's an appropriate choice. The last question I have on that before we take a short break is, it seems to me like a really smart strategy for companies, and this is sort of a, a passion of mine now is, is why why not set aside 
15, 20 minutes a day for your reps to, to read, right? I mean, you say, yeah, gosh, we're going to give you some tools. You know, what are those tools? I don't say it's a reading list, even, you know, something as basic as that. Why not just set aside 20 minutes a day? We know there's all this time during the day where reps aren't actually engaged with the customer, right? Why not, why not, why not as a company say, look, we're going to actually, we're going to proactively invest 20 minutes a day for the reps that have nothing else, just our quiet time, sit and read. And if we did that every day, excuse me, you know, at the end of the year, they would have all had read more than a dozen books, which certainly puts them far ahead of where they would be otherwise. Yeah, and I, Andy, I think that ties back to a previous point about you're talking about, you know, having reps assume a certain amount of the accountability for their own skill development. You know, as I said, I think fair enough, but but provide some organizational structure, yeah, within which that can occur, rather than just you know an email saying go get smarter. No, no, no. That's what I was saying. It's, yeah, you have a structure that, yeah, but the I mean, company invests some time proactively every day. Yeah. So that, that everybody's come to the party, and and for example. You know, today there there are a lot of really smart apps, so you don't have to just go read a book. You can you can set out really important information embedded in some really smart app, where the person can read it and say, "Well, here's the two insights that I got. Post that in the app, so that the other reps can uh, can see the insights that their their uh, colleagues gain from that particular reading." The manager can see those things and pass it on to other people mm-hmm. and see whether the reading is actually occurring. So getting somebody to quote, read something can be done in a lot smarter fashion today than yesteryear. Exactly. So, yes. Why not? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with, with, and, there's, and today there's a lot of really smart stuff out there. Yeah. And I would think for a company that especially a small mid-sized company, you don't have this huge training infrastructure right. and rather than think about, well, look, I'm going to go spend, Twenty, thirty thousand dollars to bring a trainer in to do a you know in-depth two-day dive a couple times a year. Yeah, we may do that once a year, but then we're going to reinforce that through these smart apps and having our people engaged and learning something proactively every day. Yeah, and and I think one one of the one of the other caveats I, I would have to that is somebody inside of that company needs to sort of filter what that is that they're reading because just as there's a lot of smart stuff out there, there's a lot of stuff out there. Which is almost dysfunctional. Oh, yeah. no, there absolutely isn't. So if you want, you know, it's like, how do you get worse at selling? Read these five things. Uh, so somebody who who is who is very knowledgeable needs to screen uh, what's being read so that it is a legitimate and b is targeted to the specific challenges that company is facing. Exactly. At, exactly. At a particular time. So the reading list for company A. Would, would be different than the, quote, reading list for company B. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It has to be structured, without a doubt. And uh, to your point, it has to be structured because there is so much out there that, yeah, is just wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and listeners to the show know that on Fridays, uh, occasionally with my regular guest on Friday, Bridget Gleason, we, we take apart some of those, those wrong advices. So, well, good. We're going to take a short break. And, but before so, we go, I'm going to pose a hypothetical scenario to you, Dick, that Every one of my guests answers, and I'll get your answer after the break. So here's the scenario. You are a sales manager, newly hired into a company that needs to do a sales turnaround. And upper management's extremely urgent for this to happen for them. So what are the two things you could do on your first week on the job that would have the biggest impact? 
Okay. So think about that. We'll be back after the break with my guest today, Dick Ruff. We'll share more tips as we finally start talking about major account selling. We'll be right back. Attention, sales leaders. Would you like to give your sales team the tools to drive more quality connects, scale their outreach, and spend more time selling? Well, you can with LiveHive. Get your ROI. Try it now at livehive.com forward slash ROI. That's livehive, L-I-V-E-H-I-V-E dot com forward slash ROI. Welcome back. My guest today is Dick Ruff, author of Mastering Major Account Selling and uh, co-author of the book with Neil Rackham of Managing Major Sales. So Dick posed a question before the scenario about a new manager coming into a company that needs a sales turnaround. What are the two things you'd do in the first week that would have the biggest impact? Yeah, that's, that's actually a great question because I think um, I'm a firm believer that, that sales managers are, in fact, the pivotal job in creating a superior sales force. And one of the toughest things to do is, is to transition and which is not an, an unusual case, for example, transition from a sales rep to a sales manager. Mm-hmm. So the one thing you wouldn't want to do in the first week is, 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 is to go out and, and try to tell everybody uh, how you were so successful. And so they should do the same thing as you did. So that's what you wouldn't do in the first <laughs> two weeks. But what, what you might do, I think if I, uh, I were to make some suggestions on that, is I would suggest the manager immediately – do a do a profile of where his salespeople are. You know, wh- where are their strengths and weaknesses? Because I think in the end, one of the major jobs of sales management is coaching. And, and I think they don't want to rely on what happened to them in the past. They don't want to rely on, on what they weren't good at and were good at. They need to genuinely understand their sales team. And their, their sales team is probably somewhere between five and 12 people. Mm-hmm. So I would do some kind of performance profile, and, and that's not some sophisticated assessment that you have to buy. That's just sitting down with people and talking with them to, to genuinely understand where they're coming from. And, 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 and that's a way to get to know your sales team from a skill perspective. Right. That's one thing I would do. And you can do that if they're geographically dispersed. You can do that on the telephone. The second thing I think I would do, Andy, is... I would spend some time with my management trying to genuinely understand the strategic direction of the company. This would be particularly true if the manager, you know, came from another company. Right. You know, so because I think anything that a manager does, there's kind of two things going on. One, you have to understand your team. And two, you have to understand the strategic direction and culture of the company to understand the art of the possible. I mean, does your company really support coaching? Uh, and if so, how much? And, 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 and what, what kind of requests am I going to get from top management uh, for my salespeople to do? I need to know that in order to work with my team. So I'd want to know the strategic direction of the company so when I do my coaching, that coaching is within a context of where my company needs to go versus just coaching some skill that may or may not be important. Got it. Good so answer. two things, understand my team from a skill profile and understand the strategic direction of my company. I like it. Great answer. Great answer. So 
let's get into the topic we said we were going to talk about, or I said we were going to talk about when we first started. Um, even though it's been a great, great conversation on on uh, the training and so on, is account-based selling. So what is a working definition of account-based selling? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. <clears throat> what, you know, what is it and why is there so much buzz around it? I, I think what account-based selling is, is really at, at a fundamental level. The notion is that one size doesn't fit all. That when it comes to, to, to selling, that you need to treat each account separately. The information that the reps need to develop that account and the strategy that you need to apply to capture that account is unique to that account. So the notion is in account-based selling that you treat each account separately. That's at the most fundamental level of the concept of account-based selling. Now, why is there so much buzz about it right now? And I, and I think there are a number of reasons, but for me, I think the core reason is that in today's market, I think, Andy, uh, companies are going through absolutely disruptive changes. You know, and these changes are, you know, driven by geography, uh, global competition, manufacturing technologies. Uh, but what it's forcing companies to do is to really change their buying process in order to stay competitive. And you can see this in, in some in industries very dramatically. For example, like the healthcare industry, where we spend a lot of time. How hospitals buy and uh, what they buy and what they're willing to pay for it now versus even five years ago is dramatically different. It's just dramatically different. So customers in many markets, and healthcare is just a, a striking example, mm -hmm. Are, are changing how they buy. Well, if customers change how they buy, then sellers need to change how they sell. Well, and let's let's before we move on because you said something really important early on, and certainly something that I I brought out in my latest book that I think is so often overlooked is that from a buyer's perspective, how they buy is a competitive advantage for them. Right? They don't look at this as just a process they go through. They look at this as part of their overall competitive strategy. No question about it. And if you're not, you're sort of behind the times. Exactly. So if you're a salesperson, it's no longer, I just have somebody over there who just wants to buy something. It's No, no, no. It's not they just want to buy something. They're buying it as part of an overall competitive strategy. And so how you sell to them changes. There is just no question, and I think I think that the little bit of a difference, maybe now versus yesteryears, I think the kind of disruptions that are occurring, not every market, but in a lot of markets, is the scale and scope of the change. So this is not this is not some little tweak in the buying system. This is fundamentally different. Hospitals are, and in the healthcare industry are mm -hmm. fundamentally changing how they buy. When you talk to it, if you're selling pacemakers or defibrillators or any kind of medical device to docs today, in yesteryear, all you had to do is address the clinical value of your product, and the doctor all by themselves could buy it. That ain't true today. First of all, a lot of doctors are now hospital employees versus private practice. Right. Secondly, what the, you have to be able to sell not only the clinical value of the product, you have to be able to sell the economic 
value of the product because hospitals are under tremendous reimbursement reductions. They got to find a way to reduce costs and provide the same level of care. It's a it's an economic issue, right. and if you don't understand that, that that's that that's a substantive change. You can't possibly sell to them effectively. So you have to change how you sell in a substantive way. That means changing your strategies. It means additional skill sets. So that means that people are looking for new ideas in selling. Account-based selling is one case in point. It's a different way to attack the market. So that's a reason I think that account-based selling has gotten a lot of buzz lately is it's an answer to the question, what do I do when people are facing substantial disruptions in their buying process? And the thing that's really interesting about it, though, too, is that I guess you could sort of look at it on a, a continuum, I guess, is that, you know, there's a, a really a tendency to want to make everything a process, right? Everybody talks <laughs> about their sales process. We've got this sales process, which to me is, you know, the ability to be uniform in your sales process really a sort of inverse relationship to the complexity of the product you're selling or the complexity of the customer's decision-making process, let's say, right? I mean, if you've got something, you're just selling something at retail, then you can have this set process. But once you start adding complexity, either in the product or in the decision-making, then necessarily you have to go into an account-based selling scenario because, you know, as I say, customers are like snowflakes. No two are going to be alike. Well, that's the whole point. And I think that's the reason why some companies have found the notion behind account-based selling, that is, I have to keep each account and treat it separately, to be a very attractive because of exactly what you just said. It's not one-size-fits-all. But also, at the same time, though, it seems like companies, at least some that I'm seeing, sort of are rebelling against that because they want to, they, they want to embrace something that's a little more cookie-cutter, right? I mean, I want to hire a sales rep that looks like this, that can sell into every type of account. And has you know these skills, and the fact is, you're going to need a mix of people and a mix of skills based on the mix of accounts that you have. Well, yeah, and and, and if, if if you go back in history, it's not that account-based selling is totally a new idea. No, I mean, if, if one asks the question, is account-based selling a new idea? The answer is probably yes and no. The the no part of it of of it is is the whole idea of national account reps. I mean. Companies uh, have been using national account sales forces for a very long time. Yes, yes. You know, back in, you know, 15 years ago, we did substantial work with PS and, and we focused on their national account team. Well, they had like 300 national account reps. And each one of those folks, and it was a worldwide thing, each one of those folks only had one or two accounts. But they represented an enormous proportion of the revenue of UPS. Mm -hmm. so, so they were treating, from an organizational perspective, by, by establishing a national account team, a, a group of people who treated each account separately. So, so the notion of doing this and investing in it is not a new notion. And it's, and it's been proven very successful. You can't compete when you're going up and trying to sell to a worldwide company and just throw in some territory rep to do it or have 20 different people working on that account and, and you know, scattered around the world, you need an organized structure where one person is leading the sales effort for that 
you know, particular worldwide company. So that's, that's been around for some time. Now, are people hesitant to make the investment? Would it be nice if we could have a cookie cutter approach? Yeah, it would. But on the other hand, that's not true. Uh, not when you're dealing with major accounts. Well, it now, seems like and I think you made the point earlier. If you're dealing in, in, in a very uh, transactional kind of sell, you're dealing with small companies, maybe so. But when you're selling to market-leading companies, the the notion that you could use the same information base, the same skill sets, the same sales strategy for for selling to Apple as selling to uh, Black and Decker. That's probably not true. Now, if you put that in the context of, let's say, you know, you're a, a software service SaaS company yes. selling an enterprise app, you know, largely driven through inside sales. You know, how do you how do you you know implement account based selling in that type of environment? Well, you mean in, in when you're. When you just have inside sales and no well, it's being driven, yeah, largely by and you know you've got your BDRs, your SDRs, you know, setting appointments, yes. handing over to account execs that are you know going to do a demo, hopefully close the deal. You know, it's, it's you know how do you how do you like I said you want to be able eventually to grow that business within that account to be a substantial amount of business. You know, how do you go from where you are that point A making that first contact into you know setting up a scalable account sell based selling structure infrastructure. Yeah. Well, again, that you know, that's a lot of work. I mean, there are many situations where you you know you have, uh, for example, inside sales doing a piece of the action, and then you have an an outbound sales force that's doing part of the uh, of the sales process, and, and there you just have to you just have to decide who's doing what, and are there pieces of it which could be more uniform, and the answer to that is probably yes. So there are pieces of any sales process, even when you're selling to major clients that has more uniformity than others. It is, you know, I think you noted, it, it's a continuum. Mm -hmm. So not everything has the same level of uniqueness. Not every phase of, a, of, the, of the buying processes for companies are totally different. So you have to genuinely understand your market in order to develop a sales processes engaging a number of different kinds of maybe sales reps to fit your market. I think that's one of the traps, Andy, is, is in many cases, people don't spend enough time genuinely understanding the buying processes of their customer base. And if you don't do that, uh, you're always a little bit out of misalignment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so what, how do, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of reading or stuff being written recently about the fact that, hey, the customers don't even know what their own buying process is. So how do you, what's the step, you know, if you're an enterprise, small, large, whatever, and you're saying, okay, we've got a new product coming into the market. We need to understand what the buyer's buying process is for, for this type of, of product or service. Yes. How do they go about assessing what that is? Well, you need uh, people who are skilled at doing that, you know, and, and you need feedback loops with your sales force. So let's just think of some of the, some of the resources one might have 
to figure that out. Mm-hmm. First of all, you have a team of sales managers who hopefully are smart enough to have some insight into the answer to that question. So if, if, if I was releasing a new product and I wanted to know how, how the market might react to it from a buying process, I would talk to my very smartest sales managers as one resource to get some initial understanding of, of what's going on. Secondly, I might talk to some of my, my key reps. I might talk to my marketing people. And the thing is, do you have in place and have you established the expectations with those people that periodically we're going to come and ask you what's going on out there? So get smart. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure that every company would inform, let's just take sales managers, that one of their jobs is to be part of a substantial feedback loop on what's going on in the, in, in the buyer's journey in their market. So in addition to all the other things you do, another little task is you need to be in a position to give us insight as to what's going on out there uh, on a day-to-day basis when it comes to buying. So I would leverage the institutional resources I have. And in order to do that effectively, I would set that as one of the expectations for their job, certainly for managers and certainly for my marketing people. I mean, if the marketing people, if I couldn't go to my marketing people and say, help me to better understand the buying process of of our client base in this particular product portfolio, I'd be a little disappointed. Of course, they're probably getting that information from the sales managers. Well, yeah, and and the marketing, (laughs) they need to be told, hey, I can go do that. Right. What are the other sources that, that you have? For, for, for example, one of the areas, Andy, that I think that, uh, that is a little bit, uh, you know, in a nascent period, but I think there are companies who are using it effectively, both in the B2B market as well as the B2C market, is the whole area of predictive analytics. Mm-hmm. I mean, with, with the computing power that we have today, you can do some dramatic stuff and crunching large data sets. I mean, in many areas, you don't have to sample anymore. You can, you can analyze the entire data set. So, and there are companies to help you do that that are really smart in this predictive analytics. So if I was running a marketing department and, and, and my company wanted me to do what you just said, I would get smart about that whole area of predictive analytics. Probably I would engage one of the companies who are good at it to help me to develop a better understanding of my market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that stuff can be done. I mean, some of the results that are being done in that area are absolutely astounding. Yeah, I, mean, I was talking to a company this week uh, in that line that said that uh, with the product that they offer in the field that they offer it, it is like, you know, they can see when competitors products, let's say what they can see when the Competitors, the contracts the competitors have with the target market are expiring, right? So they can get information that says, hey, you know, these particular customers or potential customers, they're using your competitor's product, but we think that contracts are going to expire in the next 60 days. Well, hey, that's prospects, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think what we can do today to answer the, que- the question that you pose, which is how can I develop a better understanding of the buying process of my 
of my market so that I can structure my sales organization to be in alignment of that. We have the capability to do that today much better than we did yesterday. And I think we need to leverage internal resources and set the expectation that's part of their job. And I think we need to, to leverage external resources such as firms that are highly skilled in predictive analytics. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Well, Dick, great, great conversation. We're going to move into the last segment of the show. I ask some rapid-fire questions. You give me one-word sure. one word answers if you can, or you can elaborate if you wish. But are you ready? Yep. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Uh, I think the most powerful tool, very honestly, is past references. Okay. Name one tool you use for your own sales management that you can't live without. I can't live without. Uh, pr probably something very simple like Google. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Uh, my sales role model. Actually, my old buddy, Neil. Neil Rackham. Sounds a good answer. He was... He, he blended charisma and skill at a level that I have not seen too frequently. What's the one book, sales book or non-sales book, that every salesperson should read? Well, again, cheating a little bit, but I would probably get them back to spin. It's, it's fundamental, but I love fundamentals. Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. Excellent. What's the first sales activity that you do every day? Uh, the first thing I do is is I uh, I re I read what other people are writing about sales. I try to spend time, given what I do now, in uh, reading people who I think are really leaders and thinking about what sales effectiveness really looks like. Great. All right. Last question. What's the one question you get most asked asked most frequently by salespeople? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I, I think what, what I uh, what I get asked most is is uh, is you know how how do I how do I deal with the time pressures that I'm under? And your answer so, is <laughs> my answer to that is uh, you need to really spend a little more time with your manager helping to prioritize those areas. Uh, it, 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 just to expand on that a little bit, Andy, I, I, think, I, I think if I was a manager trying to improve a sales team a little bit, one of the things I would do is, is I would get them to spend more time selling. You know, in, in, in many companies, the amount of time that people sell is about one-third of their total time. Mm -hmm. So two-thirds, they're doing something, uh, which doesn't involve engaging clients. So that's a little suspect. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the question that the reps are asking is a very legitimate one. How do I how do I get better at time management? Okay. And it's not some simple you know trick answer, but it's a substantive series of discussions I think with your team with your manager to get better at that it's a big deal and it and you know it's not like handling objections or asking questions. It's a fundamental issue of how do I better manage my time. Excellent. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Dick Ruff. Dick, tell people how they can find out more about you. Well, they can uh, do a couple of things. Uh, we have a, a, a website called salesmomentum.com, which kind of overviews uh, who we are and uh, what we do on a good day. And uh, the other place I would probably go is to our blog site, uh, which is the uh, salestrainingconnection.com. 
We have over 500 blogs on there, which are which cover a variety of topics. You can also on those uh, websites download uh, uh, some of our uh, eBooks and and uh, other books that we've written. So that would probably be the quickest and easiest way to learn about us: salesmomentum.com and for the blog salestrainingconnection.com. Excellent. Okay, and that information will be on the website with the show. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. Subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that because then you'll make sure that you don't miss any of our conversations with the top business experts like our guest today, Dick Ruff, who share their experience and expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.